This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Today discussing cosmic satire with screenwriter Chris Matheson, who wrote the legendary Bill and Ted films, among many others, and has just released his third book, The Buddhist Story, which presents the weirdest stories from scores of Buddhist scriptures as a first-person comic narrative. I'm Mark Lintemeyer, most grievously still awaiting an enlightening visitation from my future self. I'm Erica Spires, and it's just another day of me attempting and also failing to save the world with my music. And I'm Brian Hurt, and most of what I know about the Buddha, I learned getting ready for this podcast. And our guest, Chris Matheson. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. Welcome. So we had two things to promote today. The new Bill and Ted movie, which doesn't really need our promotion. I don't know that we're going to increase the viewership of that substantially with this. But this book, The Buddhist Story, your third book, I did not know. Actually, I didn't know anything about the authorship of the Bill and Ted movies or any of this, but delving into your oeuvre, looking at some of the movies, Mom and Dad Save the World, I remember seeing. I remember watching Mr. Wrong at the time. Some of the more recent ones, Rapture Palooza, I had not heard of, but I enjoyed. Evil Alien Conquerors, I, it seems like an overlooked gem. Yeah, you've just been like, I want to say one man, but a two-man little comedy factory for years and years. A little comedy factory, yes. <laughs> And that's my oeuvre. (laughs) Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for people who may know some of your properties but may not know you. Well, gosh, I grew up in Los Angeles. My dad is Richard Matheson, who wrote I Am Legend and Shrinking Man and The Thing on the Wing and Twilight Zone. So I kind of grew up around the business, as it was called in my house growing up, the business. (laughs) And I didn't really want to be part of the business because, you know, I don't know. My dad had pretty big footsteps and I wanted to sort of do my own thing. So I did theater for some years. I I wanted to be an actor when I was in high school and early college. And then then I realized when I was around 21 that that was really not a good idea for me. I think my ego would have been far too fragile for that because the rejection is so personal on that level. They just don't like you, basically, when, when you go in. Then I wanted to be a theater director and I worked on that for a few years and I went to graduate school. And then at a certain point, I just found myself drawn towards comedy. I just liked comedy for a variety of reasons. Emotionally, I've always had a lot of anxiety. I've always been a really nervous, worried person. Comedy is just great in that way because it's really hard to be scared and laughing at the same time. So I just loved comedy and I loved silliness and I loved play. and, And so I started going that way. And then I met Ed Solomon, who I wrote the Bill and Ted movies with, as well as Mom Dad. And we started hanging out together and writing comedy together, making comedy together. We made each other laugh a lot. And so I decided to drop theater and go to film because I thought that film was a better medium for making comedy than theater was. The theater, the nature of it is you have to do it night after night after night after night. And so that freshness, then it'd be very, very hard to maintain. Whereas in film, you get it one time and you've got it forever. So you can... To use the kind of a corny phrase, you can catch lightning in a bottle and have it. So there you go. There's a, there's a little thumbnail sketch of me. Now I have to grill Erica for a moment because she's our Broadway actor among us. Does that ring true for you? Just as an aside, I had never thought of that in terms of the freshness of comedy. Because I would think the other side of it is you have the ability to try different things every night as well. Ha, I know ha, ha, ha. Depends on who you're working with. 
some people like to do exactly the same thing all the time. They're like, there's a formula. And, and it's true. There is a formula to comedy in a lot of ways. But I do like to change things up a little bit, like just a minuscule amount. Some people like to go completely off the rails, but that usually doesn't go well when you're doing eight shows a week and you have a stage manager keeping you in line. That usually doesn't work. So I think it's true. You can catch lightning in a bottle, watch it time and time again. It's always just as funny. The thing I was surprised with, actually, Chris, is that you said that you didn't think your ego could handle being an actor because of the personal rejection. I would think that would be worse as a writer because it's something that you've spent hours and days and months and maybe years writing, and then you're putting this whole thing out there, your creation. Do you find that more palatable than being an actor and getting immediate rejection? Well, I think I just ultimately probably didn't want to be an actor when you get right down to it. So that was kind of the main thing. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that rejection doesn't feel good either. It's not like, <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's fine. I got no problem with that. They didn't like what I just spent three months coming up with and absolutely nobody's interested. That feels good. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just it's not maybe you're not in the room when it happens because of directing plays and, you know, directing a little bit on film. When you're in the room and somebody comes in and they're just so clearly not what you are looking for, and it can just be very deflating, I think. But, you know, actors get used to it. That's the gig, and and they do it, and I admire that. I wasn't that good at it anyway, so there's always that. you got to factor that in. A lot of people aren't, though. And they do it anyway. (laughs) I think I saw you had a line in the recent movie, right, that you guys were demons? Yeah, we're actually in all three of them. We're the ice cream guys, giving ice cream to Napoleon in the first one, and then we're at a seance in the second one, and then we're demons in hell in this third one, yeah. Yeah, that connection with fear, certainly, like, you're saying comedy and fear don't tend to go together. Anytime I've attempted anything like stand-up, like, for some reason, in a recorded podcast, just because I can edit this out later, I can be totally relaxed, but I just did something virtually identical to this, where it was a live stream, And it was terrifying. I, you know, it was way, way more anxiety. So just that there's something that actually the fear feeds the excitement that maybe makes comedy sometimes better. You'd have to ask an experienced stand-up. Yeah, which I'm not. I don't know anything about stand-up. But I think that fear is good fuel for comedy, for sure. And, And our kind of reaction to trying to manage it. And I think laughter can be a really good way of managing it. So it's good fuel. Well, this is actually a good transition. So I was trying to think of a way to characterize this interview that wouldn't just be, we asked Chris about his career, which is you've done in other places. So talking about cosmic satire, bringing together the various things that you cover, that in addition to the various cosmic things that happen in Bill and Ted with the sci-fi elements, the heaven and hell elements, your three books here. So two on Western religion, the story of God and the trouble with God, and the most recent one, the Buddhist story that you're satirizing religion. So there's something about that brings together, I've always been dissatisfied with the term like genre fiction because really the thing that attracts people to sci-fi and to fantasy and to philosophical, cosmic, all this kind of stuff that you tend to write about, I think it's very different than what attracts people to westerns and romances. Like all those are genres, but there's something about these genres that are something huge and oppressive and about the possibilities for the way the world could be and where we fit into it. These big things that we don't know how to deal with as human beings. And so dealing with that with comedy seems entirely natural. Yeah, I think so. Well, it feels that way to me. Um, It feels to me like they're almost demanding to be made fun of, in my view. You just can't make those kinds of claims of just 
absolute certainty. Like, here's how it is, everybody. Here's how it is. Here's what life is. Here's the meaning of everything. Here's how it began. Here's how it's going to end. Here's everything you're supposed to do. And if you don't go along with the program, you're going to be punished forever. I mean, that's just like such overt, ridiculous bullying, I think. I think that really comes out in Rapture Palooza, which notably was not co-written. That was just, you're listed as the sole screenwriter on that one. And that seemed like a bridge to the two books of yours that I read. So Mark mentioned the Buddha story. And then the full title of the other one that I read is The Story of God, colon, a biblical comedy about love, parens, and hate. And right, I saw the DNA of that in more in, in Rapture Palooza. And of course, with Rapture Palooza, it's hard not to think about the other sorts of movies that I don't want to say do the same thing, but sort of take the same sensibility of overlaying the Bible in our modern day-to-day world. So Dogma was one that came to mind for me just as I had seen it, but you know, I started kicking around ideas. This has been something that's been going on before I remember seeing Oh God as a kid, right, with George Burns and John Denver. And partly what makes these so appealing and so accessible is I was raised in a Jewish household, but I know the Old and New Testament, as some would call it, or the Bible and that other thing, as we might have called it. And I know those stories so well that I can instantly see what you're doing with them when you give us your Story of God book, or when you give us Rapture Palooza. And when I'm kind of curious asking Mark and Erica, I admit it, I don't know really much about Buddhism at all, like a tiny little bit. Phil Jackson is the Zen master. like So that's maybe the limit of my knowledge, right? I think Western education just failed me. But I kind of felt like I was learning about Buddhism rather than getting the joke at the level I should have with that book only because of my ignorance. So I had enjoyed it, but in a much different way, like, oh man, these stories are just as wacky as the Judeo-Christian stories. But I don't know what your two experiences were with that particular book. Or maybe you had more knowledge of Buddhism than I did. No, I think you're right. I think there's something very much like watching old Stephen Colbert, right? Colbert Rapport is like, you're getting truth, but you're also getting it in such a satirized way. Like it is funny, but you're also you're learning at the same time. I just, for our listeners, so they know what we're talking about. Thank you. Gosh, boy. <laughs> well, I really set that up. Here are two books that I haven't explained at all what they are. Okay. Erica, why don't you explain what these books are? I was just going to read like a couple sentences of this that uh, were very funny and give them an idea. So he's talking about when he took up residence in his mother's womb. This is from the Buddha story. As I was born, the four gods caught me in a little net. I exited my mother's side because, needless to say, I was not going to be corrupted by the loathsome impurities of her birth canal. I emerged pure, clean, and shiny like a precious little gem, which is exactly what I was. I actually walked out of mother's side like a little man striding down a staircase, arms swinging free and easy, until I fell into the god's net. I didn't need to be bathed after my birth because, as I just mentioned, I was born completely free of all vaginal impurities. And the joke here is that these are all being cited from Buddhist texts, right? That yes. all say these things and are outlandish and contradictory and all these things. Based on story of God, I imagine they're pretty close. Is that right, Chris? They're very close. That's kind of what they say. Can you say something about your process of collecting these things? I mean, this is a crap, like a couple dozen scriptures that you walk through here. Were you reading them thoroughly? Were you just looking for nuggets and then like putting them in order? Well, both. I mean, I I have to read them thoroughly in order to find the nuggets. You know, I have to kind of wade through everything. So I hit a vein that I think is like, oh, there we go. 
that's absurd. But there's a lot in their telling of the Buddha's life that's ridiculous. In fact, I think the whole plan is present him as the most perfect being who's ever existed. So everything he does from birth to death is just presented to us as exemplary. He's so superior on every level. And that's how they're trying to sell it. That's a ridiculous story to tell. Because who is that? I mean, what are we even talking about? And then you blend in the obvious misogyny of that story not long after his mother dies. And the way it's told to us, it's really kind of necessary that she die. Because, I mean, after having created him a being of such perfection, she really has to go. So, well, that's a little bit sad, but you know, that's the way it has to be. So the main comic technique here is putting all these things in the mouth of the Buddha himself, that clearly everybody in ancient times who is raised as a hero of some sort gets valorized and gets mythologized. And this is a big tradition in the East, especially when you have a free-for-all, you don't have like with the Bible, a council get together and say, these are the books that we're allowing in and these other books we're not allowing in. It's much freer tradition of creation. Then it's like they're competing with each other to tell the most awesome tall tale about this person who's probably they don't actually know that much about. They know some teachings. It's kind of like a guy showed up and gave the Sermon on the Mount, and we don't know anything about what happened before him. Let's make up some stuff. I think we probably got the equivalent from the Buddha here, or Siddhartha Gautama. I remember taking a Great Books of the Far East course and having a little bit of this stuff at the beginning. The teacher, who's a Buddhist, laughing about this of, oh yes, as soon as he's born, he jumps out and says, I am the lion of the world, as an infant is proclaiming these things about himself. Of course, that is just superstitious, you know, so that if you're a modern Buddhist, we don't care about all that stuff. That's just the historical baggage. Let's look at the doctrines and decide what's most reasonable now. What's clever about, as you go through this, though you start with this mythologizing stuff, when it gets into him actually then delivering the doctrines, I don't know, were you looking for the sort of the most hateful sounding, the most extreme sounding formulations? Like, life is suffering. You say it's not suffering? I'm going to smack you in the face. It's suffering. Like these kind of really over the top stuff. Well, that's what it says. I mean, that's how it's presented. I didn't have to search very far to find that. That is the philosophy. Life is suffering. Like, I mean, they try and now soften it and say, it's not really pain. It's more dissatisfaction. They try and take the edge off that. They've come to understand that just flat out saying life is pain is a pretty tough starting point. But there's no getting around. Life ain't good. Look, if I just thought that the fairy tale about the guy was laughable, but the ideas were beautiful, I wouldn't have done it. I just would have thought, well, it's kind of the difference in the Gospels between, let's say, Matthew and John right? You know, one simpler, more straightforward, and the other gets kind of overblown and sort of mythologized. Well, there is no naturalistic telling of his story that I'm aware of. I certainly never found it. There is no Matthew or Mark. But it's the ideas that I finally ended up thinking were just kind of ghastly. I just again and again felt myself finding it very fraudulent, this so-called loving kindness, this so-called compassion. I think it's nihilistic, ultimately. I think as a starting point, life is bad. It's an ugly way of looking at things. I think it's mean-spirited. I think it is misogynistic. You know, he borrows karma. Karma's not his, but he certainly adopts it, and it's certainly part of a Buddhist worldview. And karma, ultimately, is a really 
gross, ugly idea because karma basically says if you're rich and successful and happy, well, you deserve it. You did something great in a past life. If you're miserable and sick and impoverished, you deserve it. You did something bad in a previous life. So it doubles up. If you're doing well, then you get to feel, not only am I doing well in this life, but I deserve it. And if you're doing badly, you're supposed to feel you deserve that. I think that's a really hideous idea. You know, you bump into the cosmology of it, which is real, that pertains to hell, for instance. They're hideous. I mean, these hells are just unbelievably awful. They're torture porn, each one worse than the last. And I think it's important. No Buddhist would talk to me. I've tried to talk to a Buddhist. I've tried to connect, and they just won't. None of them ever even basically returned to my calls. But I'd love to know, aren't you saying that the point of existence is to not exist? Aren't you saying that the goal is extinction? Aren't you saying that no matter how you come back, and you will come back, I mean, reincarnation, you will come back, and there is no version of coming back that's good. Being a human is pain. Being an animal is worse. Being a, a hungry ghost, whatever the hell that is, like somehow you get reincarnated as a ghost, which doesn't make any sense to me. That's terrible. Even coming back as a god is bad because eventually your beauty and grace will all fall away and you'll just end up being this stringy haired, skinny bum staggering around some heaven moaning in misery about how forlorn you are. They're all bad. Every version of existence is bad. Sex is bad. Women are bad. Life is bad. End it. I think that deserves to be mocked. Not just for the fairy tale. The fairy tale is silly, but it also gets at something really deep. This is called Buddhism. Ostensibly, it's about a lack of ego. His ego is at the center. He feels like the most arrogant human being who's ever walked the planet. So not being a Buddhist, but having at least done a few podcasts on some Buddhist texts and listened to a Buddhist podcast for a while, I think it is likely that unlike a lot of Christians reading your God book, that Buddhists would probably find this pretty funny. They would probably enjoy your treatment here. And you outlined this a little at the end, that what you're describing the life of the Buddha is what was going on in India. And then, of course, it didn't really survive in large quantities in India. It migrated, became Chan Buddhism in China, became Zen Buddhism in Japan. The doctrines changed quite a bit. And there is this thing that came up, you know, if you meet the Buddha on the road, slay the Buddha. In other words, that it's inimical to the spirit of Buddhism to venerate the Buddha, which clearly in early Buddhism, it was not. Like he was just made a god figure exactly the way any other ancient religion venerates its heroes. So I'm sure they would say, well, you just don't understand it all. That no self-doctrine, blah, 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 blah. So I wonder about, you know, because there's no, say, for instance, there's no substantial discussion of the no self-doctrine in the book. Like, that's not one of the things I recall him trying to teach in a chapter of this. And I can see how you would, given the tone of the scriptures and how much they laud him, how it really does sound like it is all about this guy's ego. Again, the modern Buddhist who is arguing that we ultimately don't have a self, that we are ultimately all have the Buddha nature and things. You're presenting these in the book toward the end as visions that the Buddha is having of ways his doctrine will evolve that he is actually appalled by. <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. What your average Buddhist now believes, at least in the U.S., at least ones I've had any contact with, probably has very little resemblance to what's in here. But the fact that you looked at dozens of these sutras and things and taking very literally straight out, like, this is what you got. I think this is something that's useful for people to read. I will recommend this book to people. The guy calls himself Tathagata. Tathagata means perfect one. 
He makes it very clear to his followers. I'm not telling you to call me perfect one because I have an ego. I have no ego. He makes that very clear. I have no ego. You should call me perfect one for one simple reason. I am perfect. You're right. Chinese Buddhism evolves. It becomes much a much different animal, much more user-friendly. It's much more like at the end of your life, just say uh, Amitabha, who's a different kind of Buddha. There's more Buddhas. More Buddhas show up. You know, Amitabha, Amitabha, Amitabha. And you'll go to pure light. You'll go to heaven, essentially. Their version of heaven is laughable because all versions of heaven are laughable. Heaven is inherently a ludicrous idea because what is it? But, you know, you eat jewels and birds sing songs in praise of the Buddha. That's heaven, you know, somehow. And you wave, run around waving banners. But it's much less severe. It's much less ascetic. You know, their move is hilarious. It's sort of like, right, these are secret writings. These are secret messages that he somehow were hidden. But now they've emerged. And now we know what he actually meant. I don't think it's what he actually meant, but it's a less ugly version of it, I would say. So can we transition from, I was trying to connect your motivation, perhaps in an artificial way, between writing these books to, say, the Bill and Ted stuff. What I was wondering in regards to this is, I mean, when was it that you started to have like this, well, I, I suppose maybe you've always had this fascination with religion and figuring out the ridiculousness and the contradictions in it. I was wondering if Bill and Ted kind of preceded those writings or if you'd always had kind of those writings going, because it almost feels as though the Bill and Ted and even uh, Rapture Palooza, having Lindsay and Ben, is this like an anti-God thing? Like it's the opposite. We find the most kind of normal, middle of the road humans and show that they can also do something that's worthy to change the world. Do you see that as like an anti-God thing or do you just see it as like, well, everybody's just as likely to do something because we are all... Not that we're all gods, but that we all have some sort of power to change the world. My original title for Rapture Palooza was Left Alone, which was sort of a variation on Left Behind. And Lindsay and Ben, they're not meant to be special human beings. They're meant to be good kids. You know, they're decent, but they're not meant to be world-changing people. I think at one point, Lindsay just yells at God who shows up. But why don't you just leave us alone, you big bully? Let us live our lives here and peace and whatever. Do some work and find a partner and have some children and enjoy our days and not be so guilty and not be so puppeted and punished, tormented, threatened, all of it. Just let us alone. My relationship with religion is strange. I didn't grow up in a religious household. I mean, I, I never set foot in a church until actually during the filming of Bill and Ted, we shot part of it in Italy. So the very first time I ever set foot in a church was one of these gigantic cathedrals in Naples. And it was like mind blowing. It was like, wow. It's a lot of, lot of man hours. Yeah, there's just so much, so much information. So dense. Making up for a lot of sins building that church. Yeah. Whoever built it. So I thought, it was, I thought that was really fascinating. I thought it was really dense with information, and that kind of piqued my curiosity. And then the second Bill and Ted movie, it does, you know, they do go to hell and they do go to heaven. So I think that certainly shows some interest in going that way. Or at least in presentations of these kind of things in popular media. Again, I'm still trying to figure out what the appeal of these sort of supernatural themes to some of us, and it, you know, they really put off others. In fact, didn't you say that the studio wanted more just time travel stuff, but there's something about this cosmic, no, we're going to break those extra bounds and play on these other tropes that was less boring to you? 
Yeah, they just wanted the sequel to replay the first movie and have them go into Romeo and Juliet or something like that. And that just became very clear very quickly. Well, it's just time travel with a kind of a meta twist, which is not very interesting to us. So the cosmic thing, it's so lofty, it's so gassy, it's so inflated that it's just really fun to play with. I mean, and you're, quote, supposed to take these ideas seriously. You're supposed to be, I think, awed by these ideas. You're supposed to be respectful. So you're not supposed to make fun of the... Well, Satan, of course, you can make fun of with impunity. Or all, you know, unless you're scared. Unless you're like, well, Satan might exist. And I don't want to take any chances because I don't want to make him mad. But other than that, you're probably pretty safe making fun of Satan. But you're not supposed to be disrespectful towards the supreme being and therefore there's a transgressive element to it and therefore that potentially can be quite funny and feel fresh and worth doing you answered a question i wasn't going to ask you but i was interested to know and that was your own religious upbringing and you've said that you didn't really have one which makes me wonder looking at what you do if you are ever as a creator do you ever have any doubts or questions about whether you're just not getting this religion in a way that people who either were raised with it or who believe it, there's a perspective you don't have as an outsider that you're missing an appreciation or a something. I mean, you make very effective comedy, but Mark said earlier that he thought Buddhists would find the Buddhist story funny, and they might, but I think some others might, I don't know if they would be offended, but they would say, well, he just doesn't get it. Oh, yeah, definitely. That would be part of, I enjoyed it because it's so getting at surface aspects. Maybe they wouldn't talk to you when you were writing that book, but did you talk to people who, you know, believe this stuff, and and I'm not one of them, who have tried to give you their perspectives or have made you think about what your perspective is on whether it's the books or the movies or, or whatever? I've had interactions. I mean, in fact, one of the reasons for the Buddhist story was my interactions with American Buddhists over the years who I have found to be very insufferable. Somehow, they think they're the cool kids in high school. We were on to something that's deeper, and more beautiful, and more profound. And, and I don't think they are. So am I missing it? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know what? I mean, I'm just me. I'm just one guy. I've just got my perspective on things. And I didn't grow up with any organized religion, but I did grow up with a gigantic concept of absolute truth, which permeated everything. I suppose it is religion in a way. My dad had a very extensive set of what I would call new age beliefs. He was a very strong believer in astrology. The guy would reschedule a trip because an astrologer said, no, no, that's not a good time to go. Very strong believer in past lives, a very strong believer in psychic phenomena. And as a kid, I just sort of accepted it. And at a certain point, I just thought, well, I don't buy any of this. It rubs me the wrong way. I think it's presumptuous. I don't think anybody has the right. I will say, okay, Christianity specifically, because I've grown up in this culture, I mean, they've created a tremendous amount of unbelievably beautiful art. It's fantastic. So i got to give it some points for that. And some of the writings are beautiful and kind of deep. I keep trying to transition this to some Bill and Ted talk, that the fact that you're setting them up in the first film as having affected the culture, but essentially become the world's religion, that it sort of reflects this. What I was getting from that is that it does sometimes seem pretty arbitrary. Why are we not all worshiping Zeus and Hercules still? Like, 
what happened to who was in power at various times and which tribes killed other tribes in order to, you know, be the idea that conquered the world. Of course, there are treatises about, you know, why did Christianity take over the Roman Empire? And so this is something you could do research in, but, you know, just the raw absurdity, the seemingly arbitrariness, and it actually makes you kind of sympathize with the villain from the second movie because you're saying how at least Christianity produced a lot of great artwork. But if you're looking at a society that for the last several thousand years has been based on something that you think is dumb and that produced uniform artworks of a repellent juvenile style, that would be a pretty good reason to want to go back in time and fix that. I think you've given a very good defense of the villain in Bogus <laughs> Journey. I can't disagree. I'm guessing now, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, that's part of the point though, right? Is like, yeah, it is kind of arbitrary. That's why these heroes could be anybody. I don't know if we're supposed to read into your work in this particular work, Chris, as, as something that is related to these books on religion. But yeah, that's how I would probably look at it, is nobody's necessarily special. Everybody has the ability to do that. Even these guys who are, depending on who you ask, not very good or very good at music. I just find it so funny also, the way that these bands are put together putting these great musicians together and being like, go. And then you get this somehow that's beautiful <laughs> through the magic of music and editing. We get this piece of music that everybody in the world can be a part of. Yes, Bob Dylan and John <laughs> Lennon could not even make music in the same room together. I'm sure <laughs> getting people from far-flung times. Well, I don't know how much we're spoiling this, but right, they didn't work together. That was why we needed the genius of the daughters to make them. The movie's been out for more than a month, so I don't know. At a certain point, I think spoiler alerts are not in effect. I think you can say whatever you want. I love that you brought in the daughters, too. I just think that was such a sweet way to, to continue the story. And I thought it was going to be more about the daughters, actually. I was surprised how much Bill and Ted were still in there, even though it's their movie, right? But in some of the previews that I'd seen, there was a lot of it. Just don't have Bill show up until the last scene and kill off Ted to have it like Star Wars Episode Seven. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> sure. I was just curious if, in your mind, their story is over. I mean, Hollywood aside, whether anyone wants to make a movie or if you want to make a movie, do you think that the Bill and Ted has sort of reached its logical completion or do you think there's something else there to them? No, I think it's over. I, I don't really think. I think that three is sort of magic number for storytelling and it's a very funky rhythm to tell parts one and two within two years and then part three comes 29 years later. That's definitely an odd rhythm, but I can't even imagine. What else is there to say? I mean, I think at the end, I, I, yeah, I think we're done with Bill and Ted. I wouldn't do it. I think you need to go sit down and watch Jaws 4 mm. and come back to us and say if you still agree with that assessment. Why no 3D? <laughs> I want to know how you came up with Dennis Caleb McCoy. <laughs> Where'd that name come from? I think just trying to come up with a, what is just the stupidest, most completely incongruous name a killer robot could possibly have? And, and we actually pieced it together. First, he was just Dennis, and that seemed funny, that he's just, for some reason, he calls himself Dennis. And then we just kept going, because we thought, well, that's pretty funny. Why don't we give him a last name? Dennis McCoy. Okay, that's even stupider. And we thought, all right, you know what? Let's go for it. Let's just go <laughs> all the way. This dude's got a middle name, or so he claims. And Caleb just seemed ludicrous as a middle name. So it was an evolution. It genuinely made me laugh. And I think Anthony Kerrigan is just fantastic. 
He's hugely funny. And some of my favorite moments, he just kind of made up. There's a moment in hell where the guys are looking around and going, I don't even know how we're going to find them. And this killer robot kind of sidles up to them, you know, and then trying to be ingratiating after he's just murdered them, basically murdered everybody they know. He just kind of goes, yeah, I don't even know, dudes, <laughs> which is hugely funny. You know, I never really thought about this, about like, well, should anybody really listen to Bill and Ted? Why on earth should there be a civilization based on the ideas of these guys? It's kind of a deep read of the movies. And I guess you could quote me and say, no, there shouldn't. Actually, it's not. It's no better an idea than any other. You know, it was a comedic notion to the degree that it could on any level be taken seriously like yeah you know we really should have a world based on the idea of the philosophy of bill and ted no i don't agree with that at all but you had to take it seriously to come up with the plot of the third one or even the end of the second one of like even if it's a throwaway joke of like oh and the civilization is based on yeah. a caricature of you know, some, just it's like you know these visions of the future where everything is mice or the planet of one thing, the planet of spiders or whatever. That's just part and parcel of silly storytelling. And it may be no better, but it's also no worse, right? I mean, that's really an important thing to point out, too, because by all accounts, I mean, things are going pretty good in the future. I guess you could say there's a benign quality that they don't want power. I don't think they don't act like they do. I would like to think they don't. You know, in terms of the third movie, what ends up being, I hope, the larger message of it is we just have to all play together, that that's how it can all be worked out. We can overcome our problems. Somebody's going to orchestrate that. Somebody's going to be at the center of putting that thing together. As organic as it might be, somebody's going to kind of lead it. That's how it goes, I guess. But they're not necessarily... And it ends up being the daughters, really, not the guys. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. I literally never thought of that. Is it a good thing that there's a civilization based on Bill and Ted? <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> well, if you think that you're inevitably going to have some sort of oversimplified ideas creating the national or the world ethic, because just for communication purposes, you can't have anything that's too complicated. <laughs> it gets dumbed down. It gets filled with all sorts of things like the thousand people writing Buddhist scriptures complicating whatever was good about the original idea. And maybe the original idea was even rotten to a core, but it seems like if that's just the necessarily poor way that ideas circulate through society and become ideology, like at least get something that is harmless. Get something that is just good-natured and play nice together. And can we just have that be the meme that infects everybody's brain? I think somebody should, you know, <laughs> somebody should write something or put something out that the true hero of the Bill and Ted movies is uh, the villain in the second one. It's trying to, <laughs> trying to get rid of it. It's funny. I've heard from friends who have worked with Keanu in theater that he is one of the nicest people ever. They said he's hardworking and just absolutely kind to everybody. So I think it's fitting that he would be in your Bill and Ted universe, the, the kind, <laughs> you know, welcoming and working together well with other people type of universe. He's an enormous part of why it happened, obviously. We got really lucky when Alex and Keanu were cast. Um, yeah, Keanu, I would go beyond saying he's nice because he's not always nice. He's sometimes a little forbidding. He sometimes can be a little prickly. He's very pr 
private. He's a very good guy, ultimately. There's a decency, and he's a very honorable guy. And I don't say that lightly, because I haven't known that many of those in my life, honestly. Not that many. And considering the level of stardom that he's had for a very, very long time, he's remarkably, I don't know whether Keanu is modest, I don't know whether he's humble, I don't think those are right. I would say somehow he's managed to control his ego. And I think that's a hard thing to do. It's easy for that one to get away from, especially with that level of success. He might be low on ego, but in 300 years, they're going to laud. He's the perfect being. Be. You'll see. The he moonwalked out keep... of his mother's womb. That's right. <laughs> I'll tell you, we could do worse than having a world, you know, where Keanu Reeves is perceived as a perfect being. You could do a lot worse. You could do. <laughs> I'll just wait for the outtakes where they turn off. They're acting all nice, and they turn off the camera, and, and he gives a Christian Bale like scream at the crew. <laughs> God damn it! The light is not. <laughs> yeah. Right. Are you writing another book? What's going on? What's the next thing? I'm tinkering with something. I, I may just sort of go full circle and go back to my dad's belief system. Um, just really go for it with that whole new agey thing. It's just so hilariously foolish, I think. So I'm kind of playing around with it. There were books back in the day, back in the 90s, when I wrote an early draft of what I'm talking about, called Conversations with God. I don't know if you remember those. Yeah, I remember. Neil Donald Walsh. And he wrote these books where he was basically ostensibly channeling God. He's sitting there and he's asking God questions and God is answering his questions. And they were a huge, huge thing. And I thought they were a howl. So... You know, is that shooting fish in a barrel? Maybe. I can't tell. But uh, if it's funny enough, it might be worth it. I've been trying for years to write a book about comedy because comedy's meant a lot of it. To me, personally, it's a very important subject in my life. It's kind of defined my life. I love making it. I love watching it. I love thinking about it. I love reading it. I just kind of love it. So I've been trying to write that book, but that's a very hard book to write. That's seemingly beyond my abilities at this point. Is it difficult to write because, I mean, obviously it's difficult to write because that's a huge topic and clearly, yeah. you know, you have to <laughs> you have to handle that a particular way. But is it also difficult in today's climate to be able to write about comedy? And has it made you rethink about what's funny and why we think certain things are funny and how that's reframing now? In so much of comedians we're seeing today, so many of these questions about what is funny is being reframed. I think it's an interesting moment to talk about it. And if I could successfully talk about it, I'd be really happy. I, I think that this whole argument about cancel culture and certain kinds of humor being now uh, off limits that were historically rich veins of comedy, etc. I mean, I don't buy that at all. I think good jokes, valid jokes, deep jokes deep humor. It's still funny. It's always been funny. It always will be funny. There are sources of comedy that are evergreen. There's the absurdity of existence, let's say. Talking about that is just as funny now, and maybe funnier because our existence is maybe more complicated and strange and convoluted than it has been historically. That's good. Laughing up is good and always has been. Satire that punches up. It has always been valid and it always will be. Laughing at oneself to the degree that one can do it is good and always will be. Silliness, pure play, 
just rambunctiousness. Good. What is now in question, and I think correctly, is laughing down. Historically, there's been a whole lot of laughing down. Laughing at groups that had less power, putting them down, keeping them in their place. And I think that there are comedians who are beefing about how they can't do that anymore. But those aren't good jokes. And if that's what you've built your career on, find a new job. Write this book, Chris. You could have a chapter alone on pretty much the only thing that didn't age well about the original movies is like you can't have hey, fag, fag. You can't like have them calling each other, you know, but for those characters and the way that they talk to each other at the time and the fact that it's making fun of them. So there's a part of the joke that still makes sense. And is even though like, yeah, you can't put that in a film now. Right. It makes sense for them as teenage boys and it gets at certain, you know, fears and insecurities, et cetera. But I just read something that some, or I he's probably 40 years old now. He, he posted somewhere when he was, he was talking about Bill and Ted, maybe it was on Twitter. And he said, I loved Bill and Ted when I was 12, 13. I loved it. I thought they were great. I thought they were funny. I loved everything about it. I wanted to be Bill and Ted. I knew who I was. I knew what I felt. I knew what my sexual inclinations were. And then they said that. And I suddenly felt they wouldn't like me. And I thought, oh, Christ, that's horrible. Can I defend the joke? No, I wouldn't at all. I mean, you're right. That's the joke that I wish I could go back and remove that joke. It's a hurtful joke. It's a mean joke. These are guys who are supposedly positive about everybody. They like everybody, but somehow, clearly, they have a problem. So that's a drag. You know, I suppose you could get these cancel culture warriors who would say, you know, they're trying to edit you. They're trying to, you know, that's like they want to shut that down. They want to remove that stuff. They don't. I mean, actually, I'm not aware of that. There's now, I believe, the newest version of of Bill and Ted. They're going to put a disclaimer of some sort that says the language in this film reflects its time. and Maybe, you know, they're not going to specifically point out that joke, but that's what they're talking. About. I don't have any problem with that. What's wrong with the, that? The screen will flash in blue light when that joke comes. The joke is coming. Yeah, <laughs> right. But you have to have it to get the joke in the next film that is related to it. Right. We doubled down. We put that same joke in Bogus Journey twice. Jesus. Not proud of it. But you know, what can I say? You know, I mean, we were young and to some degree, maybe you can learn a few things if you listen to other people. You live and you learn and then you get loves. Right. I mean, we could be in an alternate universe where we weren't having this discussion because we haven't gotten anywhere in the last 30 years. And we have, which is great. I mean, it's good that we can have this discussion because it's really positive and it shows that we're in a different place where we can reflect and be better people. And we are all better people than we were back then. You especially, Mark. You were the worst. I think I actually peaked back then, but... I love that just as an, as a, we are all better people than we were 30 years ago. I think that's just a very nice philosophy (laughs) and I'm sure absolutely correct. (laughs) That is the dogmatic truth. (laughs) Absolutely. And we will be better people yet still. I mean, I'll be personally dead, but I'm sure you guys will be better people still in 30. Later today, I'm hoping. (laughs) Could be. And now I know how to leave since from your Buddhist book, I know how to leave directions for how my body should be treated after I die, that it needs to be wrapped in, what is it, linen, and then something else, and then linen mm-hmm. again, a thousand linen, times. Linen, then wool, a thousand layers, and then and then one iron pot, and then in a bigger iron pot, and then burn you up with a lot of perfume. 
dumped in there so that you're just a very clean, pure white skeleton that your friends and family can dance around for about a week and throw flowers on. That should be nice for you, I would think. And your family as well. Do you have children? That's how you end a podcast. Do you have have kids? I do, yes. Yeah, so your children, I think, will very much appreciate dancing and singing around your skeleton and throwing flowers on it. And then eventually, depending on how many kids you have, they'll saw it up into into parts and get to keep different parts of your skeleton. That's a lovely way of doing it. That way, yeah, right. One can only hope, and I'm really, I need to stop before I make a reference to current events with regard to that. So let us close this down. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. That was my pleasure. Really appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Buy the book, The Buddhist Story. Buy it for an unsuspecting friend. An unsuspecting Buddhist friend, yeah. Who doesn't know it's a comedy. (laughs) So long, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.